This is episode 29 of the Rebel Matters podcast. You're very welcome back into the show. Thanks for taking the time to stick it on and listen to it. Today's episode is a conversation with producer and director Brian Redden, who has done an absolute enormous amount of documentary making in the last uh 20 odd years we talked about uh, how Brian prepares for interviews some of the most bizarre experiences that he had and situations that he found himself in during the course of his work from filming with the KKK uh, chatting with a Minuteman who was also a librarian on the American side of the Mexican, Mexican border and if you stay tuned you'll, fi- you'll find out what a Minuteman is and some of the most awkward moments that he's had including an interview with Robin Williams. Brian also delved into the ingredients required for a great documentary and we talked about the future of TV a bit as well and a few other things to do with the work that he's doing. So there are a lot of things happening at the minute which I'd like to fill you in on as well. First of all, the Rebel Matters podcast has got a new home. I mentioned that last week in the podcast that I was going to get it up and running this week and I've been staying up late to try and get that sorted and now it is up and running. Anla.ie a-I-N-L-E dot I-E. Yes, it is a website with my own name as the address. Hmm, I think, is that a little bit big-headed? I don't know, but at least it's very simple to remember. And fuck it, sure. Like, if you could get a website with your first name on it, you might as well do it. So the blog is there as well. Some of the latest blogs that have put up include things that I do for my mental health. There's a couple of blogs about uh, the ins and outs of running a small business about 2018, the things that we got up to. And I'm going to be posting a lot of off-topic blogs onto that website as well. Things that are outside of the realm of health and fitness as such because all of the health and fitness blogs that I write will be over on the Ackley website aclai.ie so go there if you want to find out a little bit more about being fit and healthy um, okay so anla.ie is also home to the Rebel Matters podcast as I said so you can go onto the podcast page there and listen back to all the other episodes that are up uh, last week's one was a conversation with my mate Fergal McUnrichty there's a chat there with Father Des Wilson who spent his whole life serving the community of West Belfast and Balmurphy in particular. There's a chat with the local historian, Kieran McCarthy, that we recorded a while ago and talked about all things Cork. There is an episode there about direct provision. There's an episode with the man who was living in a tent on Patrick's Quay in Cork. There's an episode with Dan John and Jill Burke, who played rugby for Ireland. There are loads of episodes, so basically... I'm sure you'll find something there that you're interested in. Go to anla.ie and check it out. What's happening with Ackley these days? Well, Ackley is pretty busy these days, I have to say. And the next thing that we're doing that is kind of like a, a social event is this Sunday where we're going to do a training session, Ask Yoga, 10.30am to 11.30am. Come down and it'll be a strength and conditioning session of the highest quality run by myself. And all the instructions and the encouragement will be in our native language so come down you don't have to be fluent in Irish you don't even have to be able to speak Irish but you because a lot of it's going to be body language but come down anyway try your couple of fuckle and meet other people who are training away and we'll have a bit of crack it'll be classes 10 quid each there are a very limited number of spaces so get in touch if you want to come to that there you've still got a couple of days by the time this comes out and the next thing we have going on is one of my favourite events that we run the long table lunch on the 23rd of February this is an absolute belter of an event. 
long table down the middle of the gym everyone cooks some food brings it along and we all share it together everyone's welcome you don't have to be trained in the gym you don't have to be a member of Ackley or a past member of Ackley you don't even have to be that good at cooking just uh, come down and share in the crack and the banter and get some food and then the next thing is the book club event which is on the 28th of February we relaunched the book club this year this year if you're taking part in the book club all you have to do is drop into the gym borrow one of the books that we have in our wee library in Cork City Centre in the training facility send it out read it bring it back and come to the book club meetings if you want to if you can't it's okay you can still be a part of it the next one's on the 28th of February Thursday 7pm 8pm it's just another way of bringing people together and also encouraging each other to read books because books are class so do that what else? Kneecap are coming down to Cork next week. So if you're in Cork, Belfast Trio, Kneecap, who are setting the hip-hop scene alight at the minute, reinventing how music is done in Irish. They're rapping in Irish, rapping in English. DJ Pro V, Makara and Mowgli Bap getting some serious reviews all over the place, doing class gigs writing new songs they're going to be down in Cork they're going to be in the Spalpeen Fanag as part of the Quarter Block Party which is something that we all need to go and check out check this out quarterblockparty.com it is from the 8th of February to the 10th of February so Friday to Sunday there is stuff all over Cork City it's flipping not all over Cork City excuse me it's in North and South Main Street. That's what it is. So it's in uh, their stuff on in Firkin Crane, the Roundies, Balbin, Fanac, Dally. Um, where else? Ryan's, Skitties, Castle Plaza, St. Peter's. Just flip. There's loads of class stuff on. Gee, look at the lineup. Go to quarterblockparty.com. Check out the lineup and, and come and take part. Like Cork needs more of this kind of stuff and music everywhere. Look at that lineup there. Post-punk pause on. Saturday night though same time as Kneecap the Boom as well loads of cracker stuff there so anyway check that out quarterback party Kneecap gonna be here uh, what else I think that's it so let's get stuck in oh yes personal training lads if you want to do some personal training get in touch with Ackley set up a consultation on the Ackley website this podcast is sponsored by Ackley in a way not in the sense that we get any money from Ackley for doing the podcast but Ackley is um the company that I set up five years ago and I suppose that I'm just going to promote it on the podcast so if you're looking for some personal training come and, come and do it we've got 166 odd five star Google reviews on Google so if you want to find out a little bit what uh, people think about us and what people are saying about us when they come and train with us put uh, Ackley into Google A-C-L-I-A-I dot A-E and then uh, you'll see all the reviews and if you want to get involved start doing a bit of training then you can book a free consultation through our website free completely free don't have to sign up to anything after it, just come down and we'll have a chat about your goals and how we can achieve them and drive on from there. Anyway, that's enough. Let's get stuck into the podcast with Brian Redden. Go and salt us.
how did you start out in uh, making documentaries? Well, I started off on television years ago as a television presenter. So I went to college at DCU, Dublin City University. But at the time, it was NIHE, National Institute for Higher Education, right, out in uh, Glasnevin. And I studied communications because I wanted to get into broadcasting, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do in broadcasting, whether I wanted to be a, a director or a producer or a writer or a cameraman, I hadn't a clue, or an editor. So luckily with that, what they do in that course is they give you one of the few things that are good about that course. It wouldn't be my favourite course, but they give you work experience, right? So I got managed to get work experience in RTE, and I ended up working on a kids' show in there called Joe Maxi. Don't know if anyone would remember that, but Ray Darcy, Kleena Nivukula, and a few others were presenters on that. And I ended up working on that. I ended up writing stuff for that and directing a few sketches, right, for the for the presenters. And then when I finished college, then they were doing a kids' show in RTE called Scratch Saturday. So it was a Saturday morning show to replace a show called Anything Goes, which was a very popular show in RT. And Scratch Saturday was basically four hours live, live television for kids, cartoons, interviews, uh, bands, celebrities, uh, games, you know, throwing buckets of sludge over people, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I did that for four years. And on the back of that, I started to direct an awful lot. So as, as well as being a presenter on camera, I started to direct uh, inserts for the show. So you do stuff like, we were trying to do kind of socially aware stuff. So you might do stuff like, which didn't sit at all on a Saturday morning. So on Saturday morning you'd have Batman and then you'd have the Muppets and then you have someone trying to bucket a sludge over something. And then a report about condoms and how to put one on. <laughs> didn't work. Actually, so, about condoms. Yes, we would actually do that. On Saturday morning. On Saturday morning, yeah. So at about 11 o'clock on Saturday morning we'd be doing stuff on condoms and AIDS and kids who were gay and all this stuff because the producer was very progressive and he wanted to try different things. And I ended up directing and producing a lot of those um, uh, as even though I was the presenter of them, I got a chance to go out and direct uh, crews and kind of produce the item, try and see how it all came together, try and get the right people to talk to you, try and find a bit of archive. How was I going to shoot it? How was I going to cut it? What kind of music was I going to put on it? So it was a great training ground, really great training ground. And from the back, off the back of that, then I ended up working up in Belfast for UTV. Um, UTV were doing a program called Mind Your Own Business. So UTV used to have a deal with Channel 4, Channel 4 Schools. And they used to do a show for Channel 4 Schools um, that was um, uh, educational. And in this case, it was one called Mind Your Own Business. And it was all about Richard Branson and Richard Branson's empire. And I ended up uh, going up and doing an interview and got the gig uh, producing and directing that. So it was the first big thing I did was directing a whole series on Richard Branson for UTV. And uh, it was great. It was amazing. I got to spend time with Richard Branson, got to hang out with him and film with him a lot. Got to spend time with Anita, Anita Roddick, who was the um, the CEO of uh, Body Shop. Uh, that was quite revolutionary at the time. The other ones do all the lotions and all that kind of stuff. So we did a six-part series for, for UTV, um, for, for UTV, but broadcast on Channel 4, called uh, Mind Your Own Business. And then on the back of that, I said, I've got to start, set up my own company. So I set up a company called the Dare Productions. And from there... We, we kept going for over 15 years. I was with Adair Productions making documentaries for UTV, TG Car, RTE, BBC, pretty much anybody. All sorts of programs, travel programs, documentaries, comedy shows, music programs. And eventually then I left that company and formed another company called Jarek Films uh, to concentrate just on documentaries and dramas. And that's where I'm at now. Uh, what was it like going to Belfast when you were working for UTV at the time? Because... Well, Dublin accent up there, couldn't have went down too well. No, it didn't. No, it was interesting because um, 
I'd heard all sorts of horror stories about working up in UTV. But I went up and they were very welcoming to me. And UTV would be like, you know, I mean, I'd be the complete opposite of the kind of people to be working in UTV at the time. But they were great. They were quite welcome. Except that UTV put me, they, they got me accommodation. They put me up on um, uh, the Newton Arge Road. <laughs> so that's where I was living. So I thought, oh, this is a great big house until I came outside. So I thought the, 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 the curb is painted blue and white I was going Jesus I'm not in Kansas anymore but they were really good actually they were, they were pretty good they, they were quite accommodating except I come from a background of working in RT and being a, a presenter and being a bit of a hippie and everyone up there wore shirts and ties and suits so I was told you have to wear a shirt and tie and suit so I went out I didn't have a tie so I went out and bought a tie with the Marx Brothers on it and uh, wore that the first day in and about five people commented on it saying well, 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 that's, you're supposed to wear a proper tie not a tie with the Marx Brothers on it <laughs> so they were, very, they were quite conservative but there was a couple of guys there in charge at the time who were pretty cool and who let you get on with it and didn't care where you were from and just let you get stuff done. So I moved to Belfast for two years because we did Mind Your Own Business and then we followed it up with a kid's show for UTV called It's Only Telly. Uh, that started off a guy called Peter O'Mara. This is around the time that Paddy Kilty was making a show there called Sus. 1994-95 the show called Sus that Paddy Kilty did first thing he ever did for television and we worked on that and then we followed that up with a show called um, uh, It's Only Telly and that started there was a guy called Peter O'Mara who went on he was an actor he was a presenter on it but he went on to, to act with you know, in Spielberg's Band of Brothers and he was in Love Hate recently he plays a dentist in Love Hate so we worked with UTV quite a lot you know, but it was it was it was good. It was good. <laughs> we got into awful trouble because in UTV, the it's only time it was a live show, right? And you couldn't really control the crowd, you know. Uh, so and you were broadcast live, and so you know we used to have a live audience would come in. We had lots of music. We brought over Mark Almond, um, Alison Moyet. Uh, Boney M who did Belfast remember their, their first one song Belfast utter shite uh, Spandau Ballet uh, uh, The Buzzcocks uh, Stiff Little Fingers Undertones all, all local bands but also um, amazing bands all came over we had great guests Malcolm McLaren was on the show um, really brilliant guests but you couldn't control the audience. You had no idea what they were doing because the audience, it was a live show. So if the audience decided they were going to do or shout something, that was it. So in the middle of this UTV show, I remember once we were filming with uh, Mark Almond was singing Tainted Love and we went up and panned over the audience. There was a fellow in the audience. I thought, he's up to something. And this is the camera part, panned over him. He whipped up his shirt and his t-shirt. He had, up the rah! Whipped across <laughs> his chest. And of course, we got a great shot of it which went out on UTV. There was no way you could stop it. So we got wrapped on the knuckles for that and told me search everybody in the way in after that to see what they were wearing or see what banners they were holding but is there a delay between the time you film it and the no. the <laughs> well there is yeah but it's 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 kind of a myth people say there is you know, the, 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 oh yeah it's live it's not actually live there's about a 7 to 8 second delay um, in that case there wasn't so I went there live yeah. remember the guy in the late show who broke into the studio yeah. and yeah. around there isn't really like, it's got out live I mean there is a slight delay it's only about 10 seconds in case something mad goes wrong but you, you haven't got enough time to react to something like that in 7 or 8 seconds you know but it wasn't UTV weren't going on to the ITV network so it wasn't so bad because UTV were only broadcasting in Ireland like you know so it wasn't now UTV did a lot of programs that tap into the network so if you're going live into the network you have to have a slight delay on it because you know you've got an ITV network so whoever's well, if they're watching that live or throughout the UK you have to be finished by half seven in time for this or whatever you know which is why they used to have remember you used to watch the programs UTV a little kind of a, a flashing black and white box would appear in the corner that was a little dot it would always appear in the corner of the program that was a dot to cue the guy in ITV in London that a commercial break was coming up 
Only you to be ever had it. But anyway, so we worked up there for a long time. And then on the back of that, we've, I, I started Dare Productions. The first thing I ever did was a documentary series for UTV, which was brilliant, called Rock in the North. Right? And I produced and directed that. And that was the history of rock music in Northern Ireland, going right back to the show bands, right up through the likes of um, them with Van Morrison, Taste with Rory Gallagher, then into the punk scene with the undertones and the Civical Fingers and Protex and Broody and bands like that. And then going up to more modern bands like Ghost of an American Airman and even your man who had D. Ream had to hit um, Things Can Only Get Better. Do you remember him? He was from Derry. And uh, Terry Hooley presented that. But that was brilliant because we got to interview Rory Gallagher. And we got to do... No, Rory Gallagher's not from Belfast, right? But he's from Ballyshannon. Grew up in Cork. But his first major success was in Belfast with a band called Taste. He performed in a, in a blues club up there called the Maritime Hotel. The Maritime Hotel was a famous blues club in Belfast where Van Morrison and them started off. Taste and Rory Gallagher started off there. And lots of other bands. Uh, Gary Moore played there as a young fellow as well. So... Uh, as part of that documentary series, which went on to be nominated for an award, actually an Emma Award, which was called the Entertainment and Music Awards, EMA. It was the equivalent of an IFTA now, but uh, it was run up north. So we were nominated. We didn't win, but we were nominated. And uh, that was a great gig because I got to meet Rory Gallagher, uh, all of the undertones, Stiff Little Fingers. Uh, the only person who wouldn't do it was Van Morrison. Van Morrison just does not do interviews. So despite the fact that I uh, asked his girlfriend, his manager, his roadie, his kids, his best friend, people who lived on the street with him, I could not get him to do an interview. This is a man, bear in mind, who the Belfast Blues Appreciation Society put a plaque outside the street that he was born in to commemorate the birthplace of Van Morrison, and he had it removed the following day. No way. He had it removed. Yeah, so that's what you're dealing with. <laughs> so he's a curmudgeon, but he wouldn't do an interview. But apart from that, the rest of them did. So I got to interview Rory Gallagher. Which was amazing because it was the last interview he ever did. He died um, He died within two months after. So it was the last ever recorded TV interview of Rory Gallagher. And we interviewed him in a hotel room about two o'clock in the morning. It was really interesting. He was quite eccentric. And he had a guitar in his lap. And he says, oh, he says I'm not going to play the guitar. I'm not going to play the guitar. I said, okay. No, we'll just do the interview. We're talking about Belfast and the Maritime. Because well, I'm, not, I'm not going to play the guitar. I says, that's fine. Don't. If you don't want to play the guitar, don't play the guitar. No, I'm just going to hold it though. I says, okay, go ahead and hold it. So we start the interview and he's trying to explain the links between Irish music and the blues. And he's, he's saying, look, you know, sometimes if you're doing a, a reel or a jig, if you, uh, reel, if you slow it down, it's very like the blues from the southern states of America. And there's a lot of similarities with the notes. And he goes, oh, just give me the guitar and I'll show you. So he started playing the guitar and it was just amazing. So we're sitting there and there's Rory Gallagher playing the guitar like for about oh, 20 minutes, half an hour, like a master class in blues and Irish music. So sadly he died shortly after that, but that was the last ever interview that Rory Gallagher ever gave. So that was pretty cool. So that was a series called Rock in the North and that kind of launched me then as a documentary filmmaker. So that was the big one really. How are you getting yourself up for interviews? Like if you're going in to talk to Richard Branson or Rory Gallagher, how are you, how are you preparing yourself for that? Uh, Branson, I'm shit myself because Branson doesn't suffer fools, you know. And Branson's been interviewed by everybody. And Branson is only going to tell you what he's going to tell you. So you, you, there's no, if you go in there and think I'm going to find, going to, you know, crack open his head and find out all the secrets of the success. Branson's going to give you the same answers he's given everybody every time he's ever been interviewed. You're not going to get any massive revelationary information from him. So all, like, in terms of him, I was really worried about him. Rory Gallagher, not so much uh, because I, I knew his work a lot more, but I didn't know an awful lot about Branson. So, um, and like this is the days before YouTube and all that so you couldn't really do a lot of research on there's no Wikipedia no internet like you know this is 1990 when did the internet start it certainly wasn't around 1993, 94 
But um, so Branson had to get out and buy. I went out and bought his autobiography and bought a little book written about him. Virgin had sent us over a lot of PR stuff about him, so I read everything I could about him. Read absolutely everything, and uh, so I knew him backwards. So I knew I had him for three days, and he was going to give us two hours every day over the three days. And the first day we went in, it was set up to do the interview. No son of Rory. No, no son of Rory. Where's Rory? Not Rory. Sorry, um, Richard. Where's Richard? No son of Richard. And we waited and we waited and we waited another two hours. We're ticking by. He was about an hour late. He came in. He goes, oh, "Hello, guys. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, well, what do you need me to do?" I said, well, we want to talk to you for two hours. He goes, I haven't got two hours. I've got 20 minutes. So ask the questions really quick. So I was like, okay. So we've got 20 minutes out of him. But the next day, we got a decent interview. And the next day, we got a decent. So we had enough to make the series out of it. And he was quite accommodating, quite friendly, and quite nice. But he's a pro. Like, he's, you know, he knows what he wants to say. He knows, you know, what answers he's going to give you long before you ask the question. You feel like you get to know him over the course of a couple of days? Or yeah. is he just like... <laughs> no, I think you do. If you get a couple of days with them, you don't get to know him if you're just going in and doing an interview and heading off, you know. But if you're spending a couple of days, and we did with him, filmed him on his boat. He had a boat he was living on at the time and his big house in London and spent some time with uh, his family and with his with his team. So we kind of, yeah, you kind of felt like you got to know him a wee bit, you know. Not, not really, but I mean, you got to know him better than just walking in and walking out, you know. Yeah, does the work you do before the interview help you get to know someone a little bit faster and then yeah. make things <laughs> definitely well you have to do your homework you have to be prepared I mean obviously it's just like anything you can't go in and start interviewing someone and not have a clue what the hell you're going to say to them or not have a clue what they're going to say you know <laughs> if you're doing making documentaries and interviewing people for documentaries is very different to like obviously it's very different to chat shows or to something like this right because you don't have to be clever and witty and funny you don't it's not a conversation you're having you need them to give you information to put in your documentary. You need to ask a question and get an answer. You don't want to hear your voice, you know? So it's not a conversation you're having. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be smart or witty. You just have to get the facts and you have to get them to tell you those facts in a very coherent way. So quite often, yeah, you can't give them questions where you're going to have yes, no answers. Is it true that you said this about that? Yes, that's no good to you. So you constantly have to say to the interviewee, like I find myself saying it all the time, you're not going to hear my voice. So do me a favor and include the question in the answer. So if I say to you, um, when were you born? Don't say 1968. Say, I was born in 1968. That's fine if you're a pro, but most people can't remember to do that. Like, you know, so you, you say, when were you born? And they go, 1968. Say, oh, no, just say, I was born in 1968. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, go on. Ask me again. When were you born? 1968. No, just say, I was born in 1968. Were you? No, you. I say, oh my God. So it's, it can be quite difficult. Because people aren't used to being interviewed. And most people don't want to be interviewed, you know. Like, a lot of the documentaries I make, I go into people's homes. And they're not, they're not professionals. Well, I, I happen to do a lot of stuff about actors. So, most of the people I, I meet tend to be actors. But um, uh, but others, you know, they're not actors. They might be, um, you know, friends of people or academics or historians, depending on the subject matter. And they're not used to being interviewed, you know. It's not part of their gig. So, sit there and have a camera shoved in your face. And you're worried about how I look and you're worried about what I'm going to say and you're worried about how, you know, your your interviewer is going to edit it. So you have to be trust, you have to trust them, like, you know. So a lot of that work beforehand is winning over the trust, sending emails or letters back in those days and saying, here's what I'm doing and here's what I want to ask you. A lot of people cleverly will ask you for a list of questions beforehand. So you send me the questions and then you stick to those questions. And if you stray from them, they go, no, that wasn't on your list of questions, like, you know. Some of them will just free flow and just go whatever you ask. But it's important to win over the trust or you're not going to get anything out of people. You know? Did you have anyone when you were starting off that you were looking up to to kind of copy their style or take a little bit of an interview style for? <laughs> I used to love, um, um, in terms of documentaries, 
funny enough that the people I actually admired in documentaries are not it's not the kind of documentaries I make but there'll be people like Michael Moore Justin Theroux um, Louis Theroux Louis sorry Justin's his cousin isn't he he's the actor who's, who's not married to Jennifer Aniston anymore who was uh, Louis Theroux Michael Moore and uh, Nick Broomfield you ever hear Nick Broomfield so these three guys make documentaries but Nick Broomfield kind of puts himself in the documentary he always carries a, a boom and um, you know you'll see him. he's done documentaries on Kurt Cobain and he's uh, he's done he's just brilliant he did one with Whitney Houston there recently um, he's brilliant and Michael Moore everybody knows Michael Moore is just brilliant. so those guys I love those guys who were kind of just get under the skin of people and they're very provocative and it's not the kind of documentary I make but they're the kind of guys I always admired the way they shot stuff because particularly Louis Theroux, because he gets people to be very open and very honest. And he does that by being very naive or coming across as being very naive, but he's not. I mean, he knows his stuff. But certainly he, he kind of comes out, comes across as a kind of a gombean and like, I don't, well, why do you do this? And why do you do that? And explain that to me. And I don't really understand that. And he's doing all that and they're they're opening up to him without even realising it, you know? Yeah, it seems like he's able to kind of remove himself from a situation, say, if, if he was injured, like, for example, the time he went to that... Um Baptist Church yeah. place or he's like interviewing someone from it's essentially like, fascists yeah like exactly. right wing mad fascists and he doesn't pass judgement on them like she did the thing on the Ku Klux Klan but never once did he say to the Ku Klux Klan like what you're doing is horrible it's abhorrent it's wrong obviously they would have kicked him out then you know they wouldn't let him do anything so he's very good at hiding anything he feels you know when he's talking to people and just saying I want to understand why you're doing this now it's a different type of documentary that's a kind of fly in the wall documentary and more kind of social issues and stuff the stuff that I make tends to be either historical or biographical so I would do a lot of stuff I would do stuff on music I do stuff on movies and I do a lot of stuff that's historical they're the kind of things that interest me and I'm lucky that I'm able to make them you know so like Rock in the North again was the history of, the, of rock music in Northern Ireland since then I've done documentaries on the film director John Huston the actress Siobhan McKenna um, another actress called Constance Smith an actor called George Brent I did one on Roger Corman's uh, studios in, in Connemara um, I'm working on one right now on Phil Linnett I'm about to do one on the comedian Brendan Grace um, so it's a good mix you know and then I've done an eight-part series on the history of um, uh, the presidency called Uthron. I've done another eight-part series on the history of the, the office of Taoiseach called Taoiseach. So I've done a lot of big, big historical series and a lot of uh, good biographical stuff as well. You Didn't know? you go to the Ku Klux Klan as well with did, a yeah. movie or something like yeah. that? So we did a series for... So one of the first things we did for TG Carr was Hector. We introduced Hector to the world and apologies for that. But Hector, we did all the Amu series with Hector, uh, where he travelled all over the world and um, did all his bits and pieces. Still one of the best presenters I've ever seen in my life. Amazing. I mean, the guy, I remember once we were filming with him in Rio and he got robbed while he was doing a piece to camera. He's actually doing a piece to camera and he's talking about how difficult the town was. And while he was doing the piece to camera, a guy came up and shook his hand and he, and he grabbed his, um, his watch and robbed his watch. So Hector chased after him, grabbed the watch, came back and looked down the lens and finished the piece to camera. And managed at the end of it to say, you know, you have to be careful out here. You have to have Suelella, you know. So I was going, there he goes. That guy is doing a piece to camera. He gets robbed. He continues with his piece to camera and still manages to get the ident for the station into, this, into his piece. Brilliant. So after Hector started doing other stuff, there was a guy called Neil. Neil O'Donoghue who's an actor. And we did a series called Nilo. And that was broadly, the idea was he was going to look at tribes, right? And we used the term tribe very loosely. And one of those programs was on the Ku Klux Klan. 
So I didn't shoot that now, I produced it, but I didn't go out. And the lads got permission to go and film a Ku Klux Klan convention and talk to the um, um, the Grand Master who turned up there and talked to a lot of the kids that were there and young people and, and, and skinheads and just, you know, white supremacists and trying to get their point of view. But like that, he went in saying, OK, I want to understand this. You know, I'm not coming in here to condemn you. I want to understand why you feel this way and why you feel, you know, America's gone to the dogs. And... Uh, so we did that. I went out with T.G. Carr. It was Oscar Elga. So I went out with T.G. Carr. And um, it was it was great. But we actually got emails from the Ku Klux Klan afterwards saying that our members in Ireland, well, another word, <laughs> had seen that and weren't happy with our depiction and basically watch yourself. Unbelievable. So they came after us afterwards saying that, you know, they weren't very happy with the, the depiction of the programme. So what can you do? Yeah. But apparently there are Ku Klux Klan members in Ireland. So we did the clan, yeah. We did some really interesting stuff like that. Like that goes back to detaching yourself from the ocean of yeah. the, what's going on there. But that was Nilo. And Nilo Dunley was very good, very good presenter, and very intelligent young fella. Very sharp and very clever and very well able to hide. I mean, obviously he's not a fan of the Ku Klux Klan. Obviously he doesn't believe anything that they say and obviously does not support any of their opinions. But he can't say that to them. He'd fucking be strung up. <laughs> so he had to be, you know, he had to be, you know, detached impartial and at least put across a veneer of trying to understand what they were talking about which he did but I mean if someone's going to rant and rave at you about black guys about Jews about Catholics about how much he hates them you know um, what are you supposed to do you just nod and say okay well listen thanks for the interview but you can't you can't you can't go ahead and show you know say well his point of view is very valid he's a valid point of view and we have to represent that in such a you have to draw the line somewhere you know as well as the Ku Klux Klan which was extreme we did one on bodybuilders. We did one on Native Americans. Went into a reservation in uh, Wyoming, I think it was. And uh, the really interesting was there's a group called the High Rollers, and uh, these were these are geriatrics basically who spent their life in camper vans and just travel around America. It's a whole big convoy of them. It's amazing. All these American guys and women uh, who have retired in the late seventies, early eighties, travel around America in camper vans and just just travel everywhere and and. Never, they go on a massive convoy, you know, 365 days of the year. It's fascinating. So we spent some time with them. So that was an interesting series because that was a kind of a, a look into very different lives, you know, and very extreme ones like the clan, you know. So that was um, that was a really good one in terms of documentary, you what, know. What made you, what put your interest into doing those things? Like, what was it? Well, I was, I'm, well, I'm fascinated by America, first of all. I'm always fascinated by American culture, and I'm always fascinated by American subcultures, you know. So I think really from watching other people do documentaries, like Michael Moore, like Thoreau, um, you think, God, there's got a, that's a really fascinating story. I wonder what the, could we get an Irish angle on that. I wonder there's an Irish person involved in that. I wonder, you know, is that relevant to what, you know, to, to Ireland today? And you know, so it's kind of from that. But it's kind of just being fascinated by America and Americana and those mad subcultures. Like, I mean, that series, for example, the Troyes one, I'd say we did 10 episodes I'd say 9 of them were in the USA because that's where all the mad people are that's where you're going to get great stories that's where everyone's going to get involved you know um, and it's brilliant but I love making stuff in America so I did a series then after that about cowboys which was all shot in the United States of America but and I'm fascinated by the Wild West absolutely just uh, I'm fascinated by it in old Western movies um, in this case this this series was uh, 7 parts and the idea is that we were going to look at um it was uh, look at um, Irish immigrants who become involved in American cowboy culture, right? So essentially, what you were doing was looking for the Irish angle in a lot of outlaws or, you know, uh, big events in American history, either the Civil War uh, or um, the, the era of the cowboy. So, for example, 
uh, we did an episode on Billy the Kid, Billy the Kids, uh, who was born in Lincoln County in Missouri. His mother is, was Irish, she's from Dublin. Her name was Mary McCarthy. Billy the Kid's real name is William H. McCarthy. Um, so he was, that was his real name. So he was, he was an obvious one. We did one on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Butch Cassidy's father had emigrated from Ireland as well. Um, we did one on Jesse James. Jesse James, his family had come from Kerry. The James family came from Kerry. We did one on the Alamo. The Alamo in San Antonio, which was the last stand of the American troops against Santa Ana and the Mexican troops. Um, of the guys who died in Santa Ana, 16 of them were born in Ireland. We did one on the Battle of Little Bighorns. The Battle of Little Bighorn, uh, you know, uh, a lot of Irish soldiers were in the 7th Cavalry and were massacred by Geronimo uh, alongside uh, George Armstrong Custer. And these are guys who were born there. And one of the most famous, the second in command that day was uh, was General Miles Kyo. He was from a place called Leyland Bridge in Carlow. And um, he died that day, standing beside Custer on Little Bighorn. So you were able to find all these Irish angles. That one was particularly interesting. I find that one quite sad because... The Irish went over there after the famine, or during the famine, and they ended up joining the American army. And they had been, they'd come from a country where they'd been victimised and brutalised by the British and, you know, downtrodden by a different nation. And then they went over there and they joined the American army and did exactly the same thing to the American Indians, you know. So you'd imagine the Irish soldiers would have some empathy with the downtrodden, with the disenfranchised, with the, the American Indians. But they didn't. They were the fucking worst. The Irish went over there. They were terrible. Like, they were scalping people and killing kids. And it's horrific. So that was a difficult documentary to make because I didn't know any of that. Uh, I had an inkling of it. But I didn't, and I met people out there and they were telling the real story. And I was going, Jesus, the Irish are not the good guys here, you know. We're on the wrong side of history mm -hmm. here, you know. Um, certainly when it comes to the treatment of Native Americans in America, the Irish were the worst. They were terrible. So... That was really interesting to do something like that, you know. So, yeah, we did a whole series on cowboys, which I thought was fascinating. And then we did a lot of travel stuff. So in terms of documentary, we do a lot of travel documentaries. So I directed um, The Great Dahi O'Shea across Route 66. So how that came about was literally I was watching TV one day and there was a, a short piece on a BBC. Or, uh, no, it wasn't BBC, some travel channel. And it was a little short 10-minute piece about Route 66. And I'd always heard of Route 66. I've always been fascinated by it. And I thought, geez, I'd love to travel Route 66. So I was doing work for TG Carr at the time. Got onto TG Carr, pitched him an idea to do a series across America. Uh, as it turns out, Dahi O'Shea, who was the weatherman then at the time, and hadn't done very much, had also pitched TG Carr an idea where he went across Route 66. So they got the two of us together and said, see if you two can get on and see if you can make something. And we did. We got on famously. And uh, we headed off. And we, did, we, we traveled from Route 66 from Chicago two and a half thousand miles across eight states to California, uh, Santa Monica, and made a series which was one of the most popular things TG Carr has ever done, Dahi on Route 66. And I was just Dahi going through the states, talking about the history of it, staying on Route 66, not going on the highways, and meeting really eccentric and nutty and mad characters and doing really strange and odd things. And the great thing about Route 66 is because it's been bypassed, Route 66 was the main route uh, heading west, uh, you know, from Chicago. So everybody went there. During the Dust Bowl era, the Grapes of Wrath, the books of John Steinbeck talk about Route 66. But uh, it was bypassed by a major road. And once it was bypassed by a major road, it started to die, you know. And Route 66 became, you know, a thing of the past. Just, just you know, it was, it was, it, it uh, fell into disrepair and um, it just wasn't kept. The upkeep of it just, just disappeared and it just kind of died. But 
since then, in the last 20 years or so, people who live on the road are trying to, you know, revitalize it. And what's interesting about that is they need people to stop in their towns. They need people to come off the motorway and go on Route 66 and visit their town. So they have to come up with really elaborate ideas in order to get you to come in and have a look. And that's why on Route 66, you'll find the world's largest ball of twine, or we found the world's largest um, rocking chair, which is and huge, like, you know. But they have to come up with these mad, crazy things just to get you to come off the highway and come and visit and stay a while and buy a key ring or get a T-shirt, take some photographs, spend some money, have your lunch. Otherwise, they're not going to survive. So that was fascinating. Route 66 was amazing. And we followed it up then with Highway 61, which is the famous Bob Dylan song, Highway 61 Revisited, which goes from New Orleans all the way up to Minnesota, up to where Bob Dylan was born and so we did that one uh, next we travelled up from New Orleans through Baton Rouge uh, into Louisiana and then on up into through Memphis the home of Elvis into Nashville and then all the way up through St. Louis and all the way up through Chicago up towards Minnesota and that was fascinating and then the last one we did with Dyke was a series called Route 1 and Route 1 is the big road that goes on the east coast of America from Maine all the way down to Key West in Florida. So it touches the border with Canada at a place called Fort Kent. And then it travels all the way down the east coast um, to uh, Key West. And we did that one as well. So we did three travel series in America with Dahi O'Shea. And they were just the best. They were great crack. I mean, just meeting fascinating people, seeing like seeing middle America, places that you'd never go, like, you know, we were in Clarksdale, Mississippi, talking to little black kids with no shoes. And I just thought they were running around with no shoes because it was hot, you know, just wanted to play in the dirt. They didn't have any shoes. I'm going, gee, don't have shoes? No, we can't afford shoes. What, this is America? It's unbelievable. Are you reading, like we did a thing once where we were in um, Tombstone, Arizona. And I met this guy, lovely guy, cowboy. He came up to me on a horse, fully loaded pistol. In his, in his holster, cowboy hat on, or you guys film him. So I tell him, oh, I'm from Ireland. I've got Irish ancestors. I love Ireland. Ireland's a great place. So he sits down. He has a beer with us. We start talking about Ireland. This guy's lovely. He's charming. He's fantastic. I said, what are you doing? And he tells me he works in a local library. I'm in a library. Yeah, it's very important to kids, you know, yeah, get the books out to get. I think that's just a really decent guy. But in my spare time, I'm a minute man. I go, a minute man? And I heard what a minute man was. I go, I go you're a minute man? A minute man? is what they call these guys who are essentially vigilantes who patrol the border between uh, America and Mexico and the Rio Grande on their own accord, on their own volition, with rifles and shoot Mexicans. That's basically what he does. So I'm going, well, how does that work? He goes, well, my land backs onto the Rio Grande, so I sit there at night with friends and we sit and, like we're fishing, you know, we have some beers and we have a spotlight and we have our weapons and we wait and we hear a, a flash and we try and, you know, bag ourselves a Mexican. I'm going, Jesus Christ. So this guy, who seems like the nicest guy in the world, who's been talking about visiting Ireland. I went to Dublin. I saw the Book of Kells. It's so beautiful. But I bagged a Mexican. It's like, you can't get this. It's very hard to get that mindset into your own mind. You're going, but you're a nice person. You're educated. You're working a fucking library. You've been to see the Book of Kells. Like, how can you go and shoot people? It's just really weird. It's just this, this, this idea, this staunch conservative republican attitude that you know land and do not come onto my land no matter what and the right to bear arms they just they're obsessed by it but you found what we found out a lot in the border counties and particularly uh, border states rather and particularly um in the places where all the cowboys were because the cowboys are incredibly conservative like you know montana wyoming this was in tombstone arizona which is southern arizona um texas you know they're all very they're 
staunch Republican states. But it's fascinating when you come across that. And like we were saying earlier, you can't say, fuck you, you're a horrible person, I'm not going to talk to you, you know. You have to try and find out why they do this and ask the question and say, but why do you do that? Like, that's just that's not right. You know, it's not right. And then they'll give you some weird hypothetical thing and they go, well, okay, let's say for you married, you got kids. Okay, well, let's say a guy goes into your house and he shoots your wife in the head and rapes all your kids in front of you. Would you shoot him then? I'm going, eh, probably if I had a gun, I would shoot him, yeah. But that's not going to happen, you know, and that's highly unlikely. And that's quite an extreme hypothetical example. <laughs> that someone's going to come in and massacre my family and rape everybody in front of me. I don't think that's going to happen. But that's what they use to justify it. And they'll go, it could happen. It could happen right here in the United States of America. And you're telling me I do not have the right to shoot that man? I go, no, that's not what I said. I said, <laughs> I said, I said come back and we'll have a discussion on planet Earth, you know. We are stopped this fucking living in mad la-la land. But they use these really extreme and odd examples to justify and you can't really argue with that you're going if a guy is saying to you what do you do if a guy's going to come into your house with a gun and he's going to kill your entire family would you not want to kill him and you're going well your human emotion would be yeah it would but you're going well, I, can't, I can't argue with that that's not a proper argument because that hasn't happened it's unlikely to happen and you know just, just talk reality here like you know was that on camera when you were talking, yeah, talking was, about yeah. like, how do you keep that on track then if, you're, if someone's off he got uh, really angry with me and uh, that guy in particular and I was interviewing him he got, he got really angry with me and I was bearing in mind the whole time that he had a loaded weapon in the holster beside him and he had been drinking whiskey and I was going this is not going to end well and my cameraman was behind me saying shut up stop talking now walk away so eventually he just stood up and he goes you know I've had enough of this and he walked away That's it. he wouldn't do the interview he was just, just pissed off and good luck to him you know but it, but it was so weird and it comes out of nowhere you're talking about his love of Ireland, the Book of Kells, he's a librarian, you know. He's got kids and he's he's a reenactor. He reenacts stuff in Tombstone, like a, a gunfight of the OK Corral. And you go, what a decent human being, what a really nice man. And then he goes, oh, hang on a second. <laughs> what the hell is this? Yeah. And then they'll tell you, like at the time Obama was president, and we met loads of people say, I just, how do you feel about Obama's president? They say, well, you know what they don't tell you? Nobody tells you about the white part of Obama. Everyone talks about Obama being a black man, but you know he's got white heritage as well. And you're going... You're going to claim them now, are you? Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so some extreme people have extreme ideas. But, you know, it's it's weird because Americans, particularly a lot of stuff we do in America, are very welcoming and charming and decent and hospitable people. By and large, they really are. Like, I always say to people, the difference between filming in America and filming in Ireland is this. If you're filming in America and you're always late when you're filming, always, you're always, always late. Something always happens, you're never on time. We'd be going somewhere and we'd have to be there, say, at 2 o'clock. We'd ring him at 2 o'clock and say, I'm really, really sorry, but I'm going to be half an hour late. And the American would go, look, that's no problem. You just make sure you get here safe, get here in time, you know, be safe on the roads. We're waiting for you, don't you worry. Maybe at 2.30, you'd ring him back and say, we're 10 minutes away. Like we said, we're waiting for you. We can't wait to see you. Be safe on the road. And they'll wait for you and they'll welcome you with open arms and you'll apologize for being late and they won't care. They're just delighted that you're there to talk to them. If you're in Ireland, you're a film, you're supposed to be there at two o'clock, you ring one and say, listen, I'm going to be a, really, a bit late, I'm really sorry, I'll be there at half two. All right, Graham, hang on till half two. You ring at half two and say, look, I'm going to be another 10 minutes late. Fuck you. That's it. <laughs> they won't wait, they're gone. So the Americans tend to be very, very accommodating and love being on camera. As far as you know, it's the way they're reared. They're very good talkers, they tend to be quite polite. But there is that crazy Trump side of their brain that you just don't want to go down because it ruins everything, you know? What's the most extreme interview you've ever done over there? In America. Or anywhere. The most extreme interview would... Uh, uh, probably actually that guy. That, I mean, you're talking to a guy who's a minute man, you know? 
who's uh, openly uh, admitted to shoot Mexicans coming across the river. I think that was probably one of the most extreme ones, you know. I've interviewed a lot of awkward people who don't want to talk to you as well, you know, just like actors and stuff who don't want to say a word, who don't want to be in the room, who don't want to give you anything, like, you know. I was going to ask about that. Actually, what do you do there? Are you trying, if you're trying to get some information from someone or trying to get them to open up a little bit, then they're just giving you little sound bites? Is that what you're kind of talking about? Or? Yeah, well, like, I mean, if I'm doing a documentary, and I'm doing a documentary about an actor, for example, uh, and... By and large, say for example, I did a documentary on John Huston, the film director. John Huston was a very famous film director. He directed Treasure on the Sierra Madre, The African Queen, uh, Maltese Falcon, The Dead. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant director. Irish-American, became an Irish citizen actually in the 60s. His daughter is Angelica Huston. So very hard to get her to an interview, but she agreed to do it. That was great. So when I go and sit down in front of Angelica Huston, she knows I'm going to talk to her about her dad. And she knows exactly what I want from her. So she's cool with that. She's fine. We do a lot of stuff where we do press junkets as well. So when you're doing a press junket, you have an actor for six minutes, maybe, you know, and they're in to talk about a film, and that's all they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about anything else. But by and large, the film they're promoting is a piece of shit. So you're trying to you're trying to talk about their whole career, like you know, and not about just one specific crap film that they're there to plug. And you know it's shit, and they know it's shit. But you've got to go through the whole rigmarole of pretending that it's a good movie. And you're sitting there and you're going, God, I don't even know what to say about this film. I know I'm good, you know. Um, so did you enjoy making it? Oh, we had a lot of fun, yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. Really? <laughs> like, and you know, so you find and you try and get them away from that and talk about other films that you admired about them, other films you liked about them. Um uh, but they won't do it. Like stay on, on track the whole time. Like I'll give you an example. I interviewed Robin Williams once. And I thought, right, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna interview Robin Williams, gonna get great fun out of him, great crack out of him, it's gonna be really funny, everything's gonna be fantastic. So I flew to London to interview Robin Williams, and he was promoting a film at the time called Jacob the Liar. And Jacob the Liar is set uh, in, a, in a Polish ghetto in uh, Germany after the Second World War, right? And it's a really dark, dark film, you know, people die in it. Um, he, he, he smuggles a radio into the ghetto, and he's trying to get information out from the ghetto to what the Nazis are doing right to the outside world. So no laughs in it. So I'm sitting opposite Robin Williams, and I'm going, Jesus Christ, the one opportunity I get to meet one of my comedy heroes and we're talking about a World War Two ghetto movie, you know. So there was no laughs to be had. So I'm sitting there going, so uh, what attracted you to the film? And his wife had um, produced it. So I thought I'd like a bit of crack at him working with his wife. So I said, um, so did you, did you work, your wife was uh, producing the film. Was that was that difficult working with your wife? Trying to feed him something to get some gags at him. And he said, it's going on. No, she's a great producer and she's very dedicated to her job and blah, 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 blah. And there was no zaniness coming out of him at all. And then, he was living in a war so in the, the, the character he played was in a ghetto and they're all supposed to be starving and he was quite big at the time so I thought I might get a bit of crack out of that so I said you didn't go full De Niro and method on it and starve yourself for the part he goes what do you mean I go oh shit this is dumb. <laughs> he goes what are you saying I'm fat I said no I'm not saying that I'm just saying like you know that you know I've seen pictures of people in those ghettos and they didn't look as healthy as you did. And he goes, I'm an actor playing a role. Like, you know, I said, don't do that. I'm whole meta thing. And I was like, oh, fuck. Now I pissed off Robin Williams, you know. And it did not go well. It did not go well. So sometimes you're in situations like that where you, that's my fault. I'm trying to get him to be funny and humorous because everyone wants Robin Williams to be funny. But he's there to talk about a specific film, a dramatic role, and he's not in the mood to be bloody funny, like, you know. So I kind of left there thinking, God, I'm, I, I messed that up big time, you know. And he's in there thinking, he's a dick. <laughs> that didn't go well so you get that a lot but I mean, when you're doing a documentary which is specifically about a person and you're talking to actors who knew that person or for example I'm doing one I'm filling it now and I've just back from Newton Arts where I was interviewing Eric Bell Eric Bell was the guy who found the tennis he's a brilliant guitar player he's in them 
he's 72 years of age. You know, he played whiskey. He's a guy who wrote Whiskey in the Jar. A fantastic musician, amazing guy. Sat down with him to talk about Tillity and Philidor. Two and a half hours later, he stopped talking. 72 years of age, two and a half hour interview. Just all the detail and the information. And just, this is a guy who just really loves that, that period of his life and is very keen to talk about it. And just the detail was just unbelievable. It was just amazing listening to him. I could have listened to him all night. You know? mm. Do you ever get anyone getting very emotional during an interview? Well, in that same uh, documentary, uh, we interviewed um, Bruce Shields. And Bruce Shields, people will know, is a singer-songwriter from Dublin. He was in a band in 1967 called Skid Row. And that was the very first band. Well, the second band, actually, the fill-in that was in. And they were very friendly. They were very close. Bruce Shields ended up actually firing him from the band because he was too good. But he taught him how to play the bass and said, look, we don't want you to Skid Row anymore, but I'll teach you to play the bass and you'll be in a band soon enough. And he was in Thin Lizzy six weeks later and went on to global domination. So I'm interviewing Brush about him and Brush starts reminiscing about his death. Philida died at 36 years of age in 1986. He's very young. And one of the last songs he recorded was a poem that uh, Brush Shields had given him in 1968. And he'd forgotten about it. So after Phil died, he'd heard this song. So I said, what was the poem? So he started to recite the, recite the poem to me. And that was it. He just got halfway through it and the floodgates opened. He was just an emotional wreck, like, you know. And when you're making a documentary, at that point you're going, this is great. <laughs> Someone's crying on camera. But there is a point where you go, this is now awkward, you know. So you have to be very careful. And like after I said to him, are you okay with me using that? He says, no, it's a, he says, it's real. That's how I feel about it. And if he says, use it, don't use it. I don't care, you know. Uh, so it's important, I think. Other people would zoom in and get straight in on the face and the tears and say, oh, we'll milk the shit out of this. But I always feel like saying, is it okay with you if I use that? Because it is a great moment. It shows how close you were to the guy. It shows how emotional you are. It really shows a good side of you. And they say, yeah, no problem. Go ahead and use it, you know. So, yeah, lots of times in the same documentary, his mother... Philomena, who's 89 years of age, she gets very emotional talking about him. She cries as well. And she tells us the story how she goes to his grave every day to visit his grave every day and kicks the headstone and says, fuck you for breaking my heart, you know? And it's a really emotional moment, you know? So yeah, lots of times people break down and cry. Yeah, loads of times. Like I interviewed Angelica Houston about her dad, John Houston, she burst into tears as well. Yeah. That's always a little bit awkward, you know, because you're there going, Jesus, should I really be filming this? But, you know, it's part of life, you know, and people want to get emotional about some of the shows. It, it shows that they're, you know, completely invested in that person and it's good for the documentary as well, you know. What makes a good documentary? I don't care how a documentary is shot. I don't care how it's edited. I don't care what archive is in it or what stills are in it and most people do. It's the story. Is this an interesting story? It doesn't matter how you shoot it. If you shoot it on an iPhone, so what? Too many people try too many gimmicks in documentaries. And I don't. Mine, mine would be quite traditional. I saw a documentary recently where they fucking got three cameras on a guy, right? They're talking to him. One camera's on the left, one on the right, one straight on. They're all on tracks. One's going this way, one's going that way. We're cutting this way. Why? You're doing that just to, you're trying to reinvent the wheel. You're trying to do something different just for the hell of it. What is he saying? You know, that's what's important. What makes a good documentary is a good solid story with a beginning, a middle and end. Not necessarily in that order, but as long as you have a decent story that's going to engage people. And usually you have to, the only way you're going to make a good documentary is that you are passionate about it. So all the docs that I do, I've never made a documentary that I wouldn't watch. I've never made a documentary on a subject that I'm not interested in. I'm looking that I can come up with an idea and say, oh, I'd like to know more about that. And I assume other people will and I get to make them. So it's really, it's just simple. It's down to a really good, solid story. It's not down to how it looks or how it's cut. 
well, obviously you have to put it all together properly, but too many people, you know, resort to gimmicks. And I'm sick of gimmicks. I haven't seen a documentary the last four years that hasn't got a fucking drone in it. Everywhere you look at them, drone shots. We have to introduce a, a, a town. Let's get a drone shot of it. Jesus. All right, let's do a time lapse of this. And we're going to do really extreme close-ups on this guy. And we're going to shoot it in three or four cameras. And Or we're going to light, light up against just a black background or a white background. It does, you don't need any of that, you know? What is he saying? Is what he's saying interesting? And what's most important is that you go into it with an open mind. Because if you have an idea about why, I, I, like I'm telling the story of Finland, that's all I kind of know his life because I've read a lot of books about him now and I'm a fan of Finland, I'm a fan of Finland, so I know what I want to say. But you got to be prepared to be surprised, you know. So I know going in, well, I'm going to interview this guy, but he's probably going to say this, 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 and this. But you got to be prepared for him not to say it and say, well, actually, no, you're wrong because this is how it was. And go, oh, geez, I didn't realize that. And your documentary goes in a whole different way. So you got to be able to, you know, roll with the punches if someone throws you something different, you know, um, and that's important too. But at the same time, you have to have a plan. Like when I go in documentary, I know what I needed to say. I don't go in blind going, like, I've no idea how this is going to start or end. I know exactly how it's going to start. I know exactly how it's going to end. All I need to do is fill out the bits in the middle with people talking about him. I didn't know Bruce Shields was going to burst into tears. I didn't know the mother was going to burst, burst into tears. But it gives me a really great end to my documentary. Um, so that was a surprise. So I wasn't expecting that. I had planned to do something else, but now I'm doing that. So it's about being able to adapt as well. But you have to have a plan. You know, you can't... What's... Um, I'm trying to think of a phrase now. It's, it's left me. But basically, there's, there's all phrases in television. That, you know what I mean? You can take apart a plan, but you have to have a plan in the first place, you know. So is that your main role within the company is to have that creative Yeah, I do everything. I mean I would come up with the idea, pitch it. So the way most documentaries work is you come up with the idea. No one's got any money anymore, right? So no one's gonna commission you to do a documentary straight off. Um documentaries are expensive, you know. Um generally speaking in television, everything costs about a thousand uh, euros a minute, right? So if you're doing a 60 minute documentary, it's anything from 60 grand to 100 grand, right? So they're there, you know, a half hour, 30 grand to 40 grand. It's generally, you know, a little bit more expensive, but that's a rough guide. And in order to get that money from people, you know, you, they want to make sure that, you know, that uh, they want to make sure that people are going to watch the documentary because obviously they're making the money back in advertising. So what I'll do is I'll come up with the idea and then I'll say, who would be best to pitch this to? Is this a TG Carr idea? Can I get a, uh, Gail Gores to be in this? Is this an RT idea? Is this a TV3 idea? Decide who I'm going to pitch it to and then write it up and pitch it. And the way you pitch it is everybody has pitching sessions and, and commissioning rounds. It's all done online now. So you write it up and you put it online and uh, it goes into a, a system and it, they consider it. And, and uh, sometimes they get back to you very quickly and say no. Sometimes they get back to you very quickly and they say, look, we're interested in this. But most of the time they don't get back to you at all. It's just sitting there for in years I had an idea recently in some commissioning uh, system online um, and I looked at it the other day and it said still under consideration it was broadcast two years ago so a lot of people don't update their stuff but you put it in and if they're interested they come down they talk to you and they say right well we, we can't afford to do this on our own do you have any other money so there's lots of places you can get money from one is the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland the BAI another one is the um, the scheme up north which is the Northern Irish scheme um, ILBF Irish Language Broadcasting Fund uh, there's the Irish Film Board there's Section 481 there's lots of other places you can go and get money and it's long and it's tedious and it takes forever for people to come up back to you with decisions but it's the only way you're going to get stuff made these days nobody has got a big pot of money to give you 100 grand or 200 grand to go and make a programme anymore everybody has got to be there's got to be about six different bosses now who are all going to chip in which can make it difficult because then you've got to answer to about six different people so you do an edit and everybody likes it you know but um 
but that's the way of the world. That's the way it works now. You know, but I'd be lucky. I get a lot of, I get a lot of con- uh, stuff at the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. The, the, the one I'm doing at the moment is a straight commission from RTE for um, filling it. The one I did last uh, about an actress called Constance Smith from Limerick, which is going to open the Limerick Film Festival in October, was um, TG Carr and the BEI. So, you know, different sources of funding, different people give you money to make things. How much of the success of a documentary is down to the extent that it invokes like a human emotion from the, the viewers? Emotion, like emotional? Uh, all, all of it, 100% of it. <laughs> people don't engage with it, don't engage with it, you know, instantly on an emotional level. They're not going to watch it. And that's why you have to pack the first part of your documentary with your good stuff, you know. You need to grab people by the balls. People's attention span is very, very short. So, like, in, most documentaries will do it anyway. In the first two or three minutes, you've got to tell your whole story and you've got to put in your best stuff and really grab people. They go, geez, I didn't know that. And then they'll stick with you. And you've got to get a really emotional bit going into your commercial break so you know they're going to come back after the commercial break, you know. You've got to leave them with a cliffhanger there. So it's only really just tricks you learn to do. But people have to engage on an emotional level. But then there's that. But also people have to know what's on. So that's one thing that we're not very good at in this country is promoting our documentaries, you know. Um, like once you've done it, you've delivered it, there's only so much you can do as a producer. You can go on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, you can try and do interviews for radio stations or newspapers but the station's got to get behind you you know like and like for a documentary it's, diff- it's different if you're doing a big series like Dancing with the Stars you'll put posters on buses and you know bush shelters you'll have ads running on the radio and TV but they won't do that for a documentary you know so it's very hard to let people know it's on mm. and if you have a one-off documentary which is a lot of stuff I do it's a one-off one-air documentary you've only got one shot to make an impact that's it now it has some life on a player so they can watch it on a player and they might get a repeat but, you know, you've only got one shot at that audience that night. So you've got to get out there and be on every radio station you can be, you know, kind of get as many uh, uh, newspaper interviews and just try and like, tweet the hell out of it and just, you know, get it on Facebook and whatever you can. Whatever you For Jared Films then, is that you all the time? Is that just you then? <laughs> you know, I am shit at it. So I'm on Twitter, that's it. I don't even do Facebook or any of that. So, but I'm good at getting out there and whoring myself to radio stations and the newspapers. So, for example, the Constance Smith documentary I just did in TG Carr, which did very good uh, audience-wise. I was on the Dave Fanning show talking about it. I was on Arena, the art show with Sean Rocks and RT1 talking about it. I was on with Matt Cooper talking about it. I did an interview in the Evening Herald. I did a piece in the Daily Mail. I did a piece in the Sun, a piece in the Mirror. So I got out there and did as much as I possibly could. Um, but at the end of the day, you need to get the station behind you. The station to promo the shit out of it. It's all about getting promos on air because the people who watch telly, this is a simple, it's a simple adage, the people who watch telly are the people who watch telly. If you're watching TG Car, for example, you're not going to get anybody else to watch TG Car. Like TG Car's audience are the people who watch TG Car, and you have to. If you're if you're like if you're going to watch a documentary on there, it's because you've seen a promo for it while you're watching another program on TG Car. It's not that you're opening the newspaper and going, "Oh, that's on TG Car tomorrow night." Must watch that. Nobody does that. But same with RT. You got to see it on the channel. You have to see it on the channel. Channels have to promote their own stuff. And some of them are very good at it, some of them aren't. But they, they have to get the promos out there and plug the hell out of it and get stuff on the radio. Bombard people with stuff. Um, I'm lucky right now. I'm doing one on filling it. That's easy. People love filling it. People want to know about filling it, you know. Um, and they want to see uh, what way the story's going to unfold. I've got some great, you know, home movie footage that's never been seen, photographs that have never been seen, interviews with people who've never talked about them before. So that's an easy sell. You know, a lot of Lizzie fans out there, a lot of Philly fans out there. When you're doing something like for TG Carr, for an actress called Constance Smith, who was an unknown actress who left Limerick in the 1950s and went to Hollywood, 
made a few movies out there and then spiraled out of control with drink and drugs and suicide attempts and she got involved this documentary filmmaker and she stabbed him and she went to prison she three years in prison she came out they got married she stabbed him again she went back to prison again she ended up homeless and penniless on the streets of Islington and London here's a story about a woman that goes from nothing to the heights of Hollywood and back down to nothing again and no one's ever heard of her so that's a hard sell you know, that documentary went out uh, on TG Carr, got great reviews, really good audiences, but it was a hard sell, a really hard Does sell. Does the financial success of a documentary depend on how many people watch it? Yeah, basically. How does that you work? <laughs> well, you got to be, you got to have, uh, you're selling advertising around it, you know. So if your documentary's going to pull in 100,000 viewers, um, then the ads around it um, are going to be more expensive than the ads around a program that's going to put in 20,000. Right, right. So if TG Carr think this is going to be a really successful program, they'll up the price of the ads and that brings in more ads and that's where the, that's where they get their money back, basically. They get the, Does that money then filter back to the producers? If the, the, <laughs> in theory, yeah. That will go back to TG Carr, which in theory then goes back to the producers. No, I mean, you don't make any money on it. I mean, you get paid to make the documentary and that's it. But the station has to refund its costs. They do that through advertising, you know. So that money will go back to the station, which in turn will go back to producers for the next project, you know. Well, that's the theory anyway. But I mean, obviously advertising's fallen off a cliff now. Um, nobody's getting any money. So like RT and TG Car are, you know, mostly funded by the license fee. And you see that the managing director or the director general of RT now constantly saying how so many people are not paying the license fee. There's millions in unpaid fees and license fee. And they'd get themselves out of a financial hole if everyone just paid the license fee. But how has the te- technology affected documentary making then? Hugely. I mean, because, um, I mean, first of all, even down to drives and shooting stuff on, on, on cards, on memory cards. Like, for example, we were over shooting uh, Dahi on Route 66. It's 10 years ago. It's only 10 years ago. You'd shoot on tape. So you would shoot on beta tape, right? But you'd be, we'd be gone for three weeks. So you would take three suitcases full of tapes with you. So you'd have like 300 tapes with you. Tapes only half an hour long. And like so just a huge amount of shit to be traveling to dragging across America. And what we would do is every week we would package it up and then have it sent back to Ireland. You know, so you weren't gonna lose it on the road. Um and so that's all gone now. Now now, now those literally those three suitcases full of a hundred tapes each can go on two drives that you put in your pocket. It's unbelievable. So doing being able to do that is 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 amazing. Being able to instantly see the stuff. When you're shooting an interview, you can stick it on your laptop and there it is. You weren't able to do that before. That is brilliant. Cameras have gotten smaller. They've gotten, you know, um, they're easier to maneuver and manipulate. You need less light with them. You know, these HD cameras, like you're going out with the all cameras. The You'd have to have like, you know, backlight, key light, you know, four or five lights, huge big setup. You can walk into a room now and put a camera on someone, a HD camera. You don't need light. If there's light coming through a window, available light looks amazing. You're not going to, you can't get better than natural light. You're always trying to replicate that with, with your studio lights. But now those cameras can pick that up. So you can travel very, very light. You know, you can travel very light. And it's getting more and more into being one-man shows. Like, you know, in the past, you'd go out as a producer, director, and you'd have a PA, production assistant, cameraman, sound man, and maybe a researcher. Now, now, quite often, it's just the director who's also the producer, and the cameraman is also the sound man. That's it, you know. So it's made things easier to get about, quicker to set up. If you went to do an interview, you could be set up in 20 minutes, whereas in the past it could take an hour. Mm. And, but the storage and the instant access to the footage and the backup of the footage is just amazing. That's, that's the biggest difference. How has the internet affected the future of television? It's killed it, basically. I mean, the internet, um, there was only a report out yesterday uh, talking about um, uh, Irish kids and 
for the first time ever, the report is just in the papers yesterday, um, Irish kids spend more time watching YouTube than they do television, right? And we all knew that anyway, but they spend more time watching YouTube and even more time watching Netflix than they do television. They're not watching TV anymore. The youth, the youth are gone. They're not watching TV. They just don't watch it. They're watching Netflix. They're watching YouTube. People are watching, like these YouTubers who are just telling them how to do hair bands or whatever the hell it is, you know, and um, they're just glued to it. So they're actually watching more stuff on the internet than they are on television. So television is constantly under under pressure from the internet and constantly under pressure from the likes of Netflix. I mean, I don't even watch that much television. I work in television because um, it's just everything else is so accessible you know so I'm sitting down obviously I'll watch a good documentary that's on um, but a lot of the comedy that's on I'm not into it and I'm going why, why would I watch this comedy with all these ads I just watch it on Netflix like you know so it's 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 like, television is, is struggling it's really really struggling do you see yourself making documentaries for the internet in the future I, no, I, no I don't you know I'm going to hang in there as long as I can um, and it might change it might change for the moment I have absolutely no interest in doing that None whatsoever. And it's just that's just me being a snob. I want it to be on television. I'm old fashioned. I want my work to be seen on TV. I don't want it to be seen. Well, it all ends up on YouTube anyway, but I don't want to make stuff just for just for the internet. But then that's but ultimately that's gonna change. But that's like being a snob. That's like, you know, back in the day of Hollywood, all the guys who were making movies in Hollywood in the heyday in the forties and fifties and sixties weren't making television programs. They were going, I'm not gonna make television programs, I'm not gonna slum it with television programs. And now they're all making television programs. And all of a sudden television has got a, a huge kudos and they're all making stuff for Netflix and whatnot, and dramas and whatnot. Uh, and ultimately all of us are gonna end up making stuff for YouTube, but I'm gonna resist it as long as I possibly can. I'll probably end up broke. But I just I don't know. Like I trained in television, I like watching television if a good program is on. And the idea now, if I go out and say, I'm going to shoot a documentary, he said, so what, where's it going to be broadcast? Oh, it's going to be on the internet. They just go, fuck off. <laughs> There's no interest in talking to you. They go, oh, really? Yeah, on the internet. All right. And it's just like, you just go down their estimation. They want to hear it's on RT. They want to hear it's on TG Card. They want to hear it's on TV3. They know when it's on. They know it's going to be in the paper. And people still have that, you know, I think. Certainly for documentaries, they still have that. Getting on a TV is obviously still more exclusive than yeah. the massive information that's on our... It is, yeah, definitely, yeah. And you can focus your audience a bit more, you know, and people will, well, hopefully people will watch it. But I would be, a, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, I would be a bit of a snob about that. I'd certainly, I have never made anything just for the internet, and I hope to God I never do. <laughs> How do you think you've changed over the last few, last, say, 20 years of making TV? Technology. I mean, the biggest change is what you just mentioned. The internet has changed everything, you know. Um, even in terms of access to information and emails. Like I remember when I first did a documentary on, on when I did a documentary on John Houston. That was in 1996, right? There's no internet. There was no nothing. And I got to find his daughter, Angelica Houston. So how the hell do I find his daughter? How the hell do I know where she is? So I had no way of getting in touch with her. So what I did was I went to the American Embassy. And I went to the American Embassy. I said, do you have a list of agents in America? Um, of, of theatrical agents or Hollywood or actors agents they said yeah we do I said would you, would you have any idea who Angelica Houston's agent will be they said yeah it's this you know, so I managed to find out get a fax number remember what faxes are send them a fax and you got to wait then until you know three or four weeks later you get a fax back saying right you might be interested in call this number and eventually you get a phone number where you can ring them and try and get them to do it now get on to IMDB there's her there's her agents her publicists her managers mobile number office number and email. So you, it's instant access to people. You can get yeses and no's back much quicker. Now, back in those days, you had to work really hard to get anybody to do to be in your documentary. You had to work really hard to find where they were and to get the request through to them. And it was a nightmare. I used to write letters to people. And you wait waiting ages to hear back and you didn't even know if they got the letter. 
sometimes you hear back and sometimes by and large you never would so that has changed technology in terms of instant access on the internet emails that has changed everything camera sizes as i said cards drives not using tape anymore and um, that's all changed everything's gotten a lot quicker you know everything's gotten a lot quicker everything has sped up the filming of it the editing of it um it's it's, it's much easier to make television how long does it take for you to make one like a documentary say a 60 minute documentary from start to finish six months six months yeah for me it would take about six months from and that would be researching it for about two or three months so the research would involve reading everything about the person um finding archive footage photographs you know stills home movie footage um approaching people who knew him going out and meeting them and asking them would they be in the documentary doing all that kind of stuff and then going out and shooting it so you might shoot it over two or three weeks not everybody's going to be available every day so the shooting could take quite a while and then another month maybe looking at all the stuff and marketing it up and then another month to cut it so I'd say six months which is quick I'm really quick I can get those stuff done very fast most of them, I think other people would take a lot longer than that but I, uh, I think, you know, within six months, you should be able to cut 60 minutes, shoot and cut 60 minutes. It's not that hard. A 60-minute documentary on television is only 52 minutes, bearing in mind, you know. I mean, a half hour is only 23 minutes. So it's not even that long. 23 minutes is not enough time to tell anything. But 52 is not that long. So, uh, yeah, I'd take, it'd take me about six months, you know. Do you have and a f- I do about two a year. You know, that's that's usually what I do is about two documentaries a year. Do you have a favourite one that you made? <laughs> My favourite one, two. Um, well, I love the series I did called Ultron for TG Car, which was an eight-part series. Michael D. Higgins wasn't president at that stage. Mary McAleese was. And it was it was brilliant. It was done for TG Car with BAI money. And it was an eight-part series. Each error was on a president of the United States. So he started off at Douglas Tahija and went through to Mary McAleese. And it was just about their presidency, who they were, what they did during their time of presence. And it covered the entire development of Ireland as a nation from the 1930s right through to the present day. And there was loads of controversies involved with the presidency and they went through a lot of political turmoil to the troubles and everything. And it covered such a huge broad span of Irish history. And I got to interview fascinating people like, you know, former Taoiseach, uh, former Uthron, like, you know, Mary Robinson, Mary McAleese, they all they all appeared in it. Uh, Paddy Hillary. So it was just, it was fascinating because you're, you're filming history. It's just part of history. That I loved. The only one that I loved more than anything was um, one I did call it came from Connemara. So I'm a huge fan of movies. And Roger Corman is a very famous B-movie director. Roger Corman made films like um, uh, uh, Little Shop of Horrors and Pit in the Pendulum and uh, <laughs> loads loads of movies. A lot of stuff by Edgar Allan Poe. A lot of stuff like Wasp Woman, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, you know, uh, The Lair of the Sea Serpent, really bad B-movies. But he came to Ireland in the 1990s because um, they were trying to bring in a new tax and uh, he was making movies in the States and trying to sell them in Europe. And the European Union were trying to bring in a tax where they were going to tax American movies coming into Europe. So in order to circumvent that tax, he decided he would set up a studio in Europe. So around the time, Michael D. Higgins was a minister for arts and he was trying to encourage people to come over and make films and you know support the arts in the west of Ireland. So he met with Roger Corman and they worked out a deal where he gave him a studio uh, in the west of Ireland but he had to employ people who were Irish speakers because it was in a, it was in a Gaeltacht area Uders and Gaelt they gave him the grant and everyone who worked on it had Gaeltacht so all of a sudden for a period of about five years in Connemara people were going to pubs and sitting beside a guy with the head of an alien or a sea serpent or a ninja warrior and people like Don the Dragon Wilson James Brolin Alexander Paul Corbin Burns and all these people who made great movies were all come David Carradine was there uh, all these people came over and started making movies and he made 20 movies in five years. 
That's, you know, four movies a year. Four movies a year, which means he was turning out a movie every three months. So every three months he was making a feature film from beginning to end, which is unbelievable. Shot in Ireland, directed by Irish people quite often. Irish actors in it, Irish money in it. And no one ever considers them Irish movies because they're horror movies, you know, and they're, they're kind of, a uh, few of them are kind of, there's lots of tits and ass in them, you know, and uh, lots of murders and all that kind of stuff. But it was fascinating. So I went to TG Car with that because it was an obvious TG Car idea because everyone who worked on it had Gwelga. And they said, you know, you'll never be able to do it because Roger Corman won't talk to you. Roger Corman's in his 90s and he won't do it. But I pursued him. I got onto his production company and I was absolutely persistent. I kept on him. I phoned him. I rang them. I sent them cards. I sent them gifts. And eventually he said, oh, Jesus, just get this guy away. I'll do his fucking interview. So he did the interview. So I was able to go to Los Angeles and meet Roger Corman, who did the interview. And then we made a brilliant documentary about it called It Came From Connemara. So that one loads of awards. That was nominated for an IFTA. And uh, yeah, it was really, that, was, that was a really good one because it's fun. And a lot of the people who worked on it, like Hector worked with him, Shun Geralt, who's a newsman in RT, worked with him. Evan O'Rourke, who's now a broadcaster in RT Radio, worked with him. Uh, Dave Caffrey, uh, Caffrey, who directs Love Hate, started off with him. A lot of actors started off with him. So a lot of people who now have, you know, very significant careers in the Irish film industry started off working with Roger Corman. For nothing, for next to nothing, like making movies about aliens. And like one of the plots, Jesus Christ, it's called Blood Fist 8. Don the Dragon Wilson comes to Ireland because he's fallen in love with an Irish girl and uh, he wants to get some time off work because he wants to ask her to marry him. And the girl says, well, you have to ask my boss, but you have to give him a present. So he decides he's going to buy a six-pack of Murphys. They couldn't get Guinness. Guinness wouldn't let them use Guinness. They get six-pack of Murphys. So he gets a six-pack of Murphys. He's going to give it to your one's boss. But he leaves it in a bar. But meanwhile, the IRA are in that bar and the IRA have hidden six detonators to nuclear weapons, as they do, in the bottle, in, in a six-pack of Murphys. And he picks up the wrong six-pack. So this guy goes out with a six-pack of Murphys, which contains the nuclear detonators, the six atomic bombs. Of course, the IRA have atomic bombs, you know. And they go after him to get it back. And that's the plot in it. I mean, it's just... As a place, how do you see those movies? Are they, are they they're all available on DVD. Some of them are online, but they're all available on DVD. You can buy them, yeah. Uh, there's uh, movies like with uh, titles like Doorway to Hell and um, uh, that, that was Blood Fist 8, I think that was called. Uh, there's one called Hard Target. There's one called Dangerous Curves. There's one called <laughs> Inconceivable Attraction. They sound like porn movies. They are. Yeah. Some of them are they're not quite porn, but there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, naked flesh in them, all right. In fact, one of the movies, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's directed by an Irish fella. Carmen was getting a lot of hassle for people saying that he was making porn down there. And Ultron, uh, the Udris and the Galaxy that were subsidizing porn. So all the Sunday World, all the newspapers got, you know, copped onto this and started giving them a hard time. So in order to show that he wasn't doing that, he premiered one of his films at the Galway Film Flat to huge amounts of walkouts. It was <laughs> shite. And there was scenes in it, like of, uh, there was loads of sex scenes in it, you know. So he shows in the film that he's trying to show them that he's not making porn, which is practically pornographic. But, he's, but it was all fun. Everyone got a great, uh, I was going to say leg up, but uh, probably the wrong choice of phrase. Um, everybody got a great start down there. And it was a great documentary. It was great to have him in it. And I got to meet James Brolin, who would be a hero of mine. He was in... Um, Capricorn won a great movie. He was in Amityville Horror. He's Josh Rowland's dad. He made a film down there, again about the IRA, called uh, My Brother's War, with the worst accents you've ever seen in your life. Josh Brolin does a, um, he plays a, a Belfast IRA man with an accent that I'd never heard anywhere in my life. Utter crap. But um, he did it. Corbin Bernstein, who was in LA Law, made a film there. 
called Space Jacked, where he's in a spaceship that gets hijacked. So he's being Space Jacked. But it's uh, great fun. And Roger Corman's still making movies. The guy's in his 90s. And the last film he made was called, uh, uh, what was it called? It was, um, uh, it was about the cross between a tarantula and a werewolf. So a tarantula and a werewolf had sex and the offspring of that fought against a cross. It was Sharktopolis. So it was a cross between a shark and an octopus. No, yeah, that was it. A cross between a shark and an octopus and a werewolf. And uh, the, the, uh, it was a fighting. They basically had a big, uh, I think it was a love story, actually. But anyway, so <laughs> Sharktopolis, it's called. The one in the Galway Film Festival sounds like the plot from Father Ted when they had the movie. Oh, yeah. The yeah down with this kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it does. But he showed the wrong movie to the wrong crowd. But it all blew over and, and uh, eventually he left. He left. He was only there for five years. But his legacy was amazing, you know. And it was a great documentary to make. I really worked hard on it. I loved making it. Uh, it was called It Came from Connemara. And I really went for the whole B-movie vibe on it, you know. The music was very B-movie. The way I edited it was very B-movie. The graphics were very B-movie. And uh, like I say, people loved it. It won loads of awards. got great reviews. Showed all over the world. Showed in Hollywood, San Francisco, Chicago. I got invited to the Raindance Film Festival. The Raindance Film Festival is quite a, a prestigious festival in London. So it screened in London. Uh, it screened all over the world. So that was really successful. It was a great one to do. Is it out there to watch, though? Yeah, it's on Amazon actually. You know, Amazon Prime, you can get it on Amazon Prime. It came from Connemara. It cost you four ninety nine to watch it. But you can <laughs> see it there. So go and watch it. I'll get some money off you. How much? Ten cent? Four ninety nine. I think nine at that night. <laughs> um do you have a favourite movie? Jaws. Do you have a favourite documentary? Uh favourite movie, Jaws. Favourite documentary, I would say, is uh, now it was about the Freedmans. You ever see a documentary? It's called Investigating the Freedmans. It was amazing. That and one that I, that uh, that I've seen again recently called Exit Through the Gift Shop about Banksy. Have you seen that? The one about the Freedmans is about a fella in the family who a father who was basically abusing his kids, and for years and no one knew about it. But they were documenting it. The kids throughout the whole abuse, and eventually after the father died, they made this documentary about it. It's just it's. It's horrible, but it's absolutely riveting. The Banksy one is uh, is just amazing. Exit through the gift shop. So it's about Banksy and about the guys that Banksy have inspired. But the whole thing might be a joke, you know. If you've ever seen it, it's just amazing. Um, Banksy appears in it, but his face is blacked out and his voice is altered, so you don't know whether it's him or not. And then he kind of inspires these guys to start doing um, graffiti in New York. And it's about his process and how he does this stuff. But it... it at the end of it, you're thinking, I wonder if I've been had on. Is that Banksy at all? This is part of a performance art. It's a brilliant, brilliant documentary. I always like looking for Sugarman. Did you see that one? I've seen that one, yeah. That's a really, really good documentary. Again, that's about who knows who he was. No one knows who he was. No one had ever heard of him before. But there you had a brilliant story, really well told. And it grabbed you the minute you watched it. And you thought, that's fantastic. There's been two documentaries I recently about Whitney Houston. I didn't like either of them. Um, and so I just thought it was going over the same old ground stuff you've heard before so the likes of Sugarman it's something like I don't know who this guy is I have no idea who he is this sounds fascinating and uh, it just really hooked me in I thought it was fantastic there's about five different possibilities at the beginning like he shot himself on stage yeah. or yeah. poor peddler himself yeah. or he's just dead somewhere yeah and he's not and he's alive he's still alive spoiler spoiler yeah. alert <laughs> spoiler alert <laughs> yeah but do that was have, a great one do you have a favourite series at the moment uh well, lots of different ones. In terms of comedy, I mean, in terms of comedy, going back to the classics, 
Uh, I love Seinfeld. I love Kirby Enthusiasm. I'm completely addicted to the Modern Family. I think they're fantastic. But Seinfeld and Kirby Enthusiasm can't beat them. And Arrested Development. They'd be the three best comedies I've seen in years. In terms of uh, a drama, obviously same as everybody, Breaking Bad. But I've just finished watching uh, all three seasons of Fargo, which I was blown away by. It took me a long time to get to Fargo. Uh, everyone else was raving about it. I never really got a chance to watch it. Watched the first series, was completely hooked. Second series is even better. Third series isn't quite as good, but the three series of Fargo, they're all available on Netflix, are absolutely amazing. So I think Fargo and obviously Breaking Bad. I've yet to see The Sopranos. Everyone loves The Sopranos, that classic I was just going to say it. I'm watching it again. Oh, yeah. I've time. never watched it. I've watched the first episode, and I've never had a chance to sit down and watch it. It's just so much of it. Like a friend of mine's man at the house, for example, and he says, uh, you know, you got to watch House. House is brilliant, but Hugh Laurie, you got to watch it. I go, oh, yeah, is it on Netflix? And I turn it on. It's like 200 episodes. I've got enough hours in the day to be watching House. So I actually I, started going on YouTube and watching Sopranos highlights. Yeah. Good. Sopranos, I've got to get to it now. I have it on DVD. I know I can download it. I've got to sit down and watch it. It's the one hole in my viewing. Like, everybody had watched Breaking Bad. Everybody talked about how wonderful Breaking Bad was. I never saw it. And after being berated by people saying, how can you not watch Breaking Bad? I eventually sat down and started to watch it and got hooked by it. Well, have you seen um, Wild Wild Country? No. Oh, my God. It's on Netflix about the a cult that was in America in the 80s. Oh, yeah. It was like a, a guy called Bagwan. Come over. <laughs> it's a series. It's like there, there's like four or five part series. Something like that. See, maybe, that, that I can maybe, watch. Maybe six part series. But yeah, it's short enough. If something's short enough, I can Fargo, three seasons, ten episodes each. That's grand. I can get through that. That's easy enough. I love comedians and cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. It's six or seven minutes. Most of the longest one is 15 minutes. That's my attention span. That's as much as I can watch. Like I haven't got the time to invest in 200 episodes or something, you know. So um yeah, so I'm missing out on a lot of stuff. And then you get you know, get stuff that's recommended to you and you and it's just shite. Like I mean, I just recently watched on the sinner on Netflix. You see that? I mean, it's not just how it was crap. But you're watching, you're halfway through, you're going, I better see it. It's, it's kind of, obviously, it's going to get better. Um, I recently watched uh, Big Little Lies with Nicole Kidman. Is that, everyone was raving about that. I didn't think much of it. Um, next one I want to watch is The Handmaid's Tale. Everyone's talking about that, so I'll be very keen to watch that. But I've just literally finished watching all three seasons of Fargo, and uh, that'll be one of my favourites, one of my current favourites. When's the Thin Lizzy uh, documentary coming out? Uh, it'll be on in the autumn in RT, so I'll be back. <laughs> Excuse me. It'll be part of their autumn launch, so that means it'll be on September probably. So it'll be on RT1 in September. It's called Fill in the Old Town. Class. Yeah. Thanks for the podcast. Yeah, you're very welcome. Shania Khardigil, episode 29 of the Rebel Matters podcast is in the bag. Got a mila, mila, mila maigat to Brian for taking the time to meet me. We actually recorded that podcast up in the editing suites in Dublin when he was working on that Phil Linnett documentary which is already out by this stage by the time you're hearing this I think it came out in September so you can probably go and look that up online and try and find it somewhere um, if you're enjoying the podcast leave us a 5 star rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcasts you can just leave a review everywhere leave all the reviews Share the podcast with your friends. Go back, listen to the other episodes. Go to Anla.ie, which is the new home for the Rebel Matters podcast. See the blogs out of there. See the other episodes out of there. There's a contact page. You Also, you can get in touch with me. If you fill that in, I'll get a wee email saying you're after wanting to contact me and I'll write back to you. Easy as that. Let me know what you think of the podcast, what you think of the website. Let me know who you want to hear in the podcast or if you have any thoughts about episodes that have gone by. And I think that's it. So get out there and enjoy yourself. Be nice to each other. Just all good stuff.
Come back next week. Share the Rebel Matters podcast with your mates. And, um, Sinead, slang of foil lads. Chuck a yarla. 